0: Well, welcome back, misfits. And today we are talking geology and reading the landscape with Dr. Rob Thomas from the University of Montana Western, which is still hard for me to say that. I still want to say Western (laughs) Montana College, which happens to be my alma mater. So, So Rob, uh, go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Well, uh, yep, that's me. I'm in the Environmental Sciences Department at the University. And I've been there for about uh, this is my 28th year. And I um, teach uh, geology courses. And I have uh, co authored a couple of books Roadside Geology of the Yellowstone Country and Roadside Geology of Montana, the uh, second edition, which just came out. Um, just a couple of years ago
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with Don Hyman and uh, w- received the High Plains Book Award, which was a uh, neat thing to have happen. And uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, my my passion is field uh, geology and working with students uh, out in the field.
0: And um, the Roadside Geology, Montana, now you wrote this, you and, and um, Henman wrote the second edition. So, what yes. I always wonder: what was it like taking over kind of this franchise? You know, coming from the illustrious David Alt, right, <laughs> and taking uh, over that franchise and making it your own.
1: Yeah, uh, we, you know, honestly, I, I actually didn't read the first edition. Um, I didn't look at the first edition. I mean, I did once. Um, <laughs> A long time ago, I used it, of course. But uh, no, Don and I went into this and completely redid it. Uh, There's the only thing that remains of the original book is a photograph uh, that they used of the Glacial Lake uh, strand lines on Mount Sentinel uh, Mm -hmm. that Hyman took from his house and or somewhere near his house uh, in Missoula. And uh, that is the only thing that remains of the original book. So it is not a second edition, really. It is a completely r- uh, new book from right. start to finish.
0: <laughs> and and then you said you also did the Roadside Geology of the Yellowstone Country.
1: That's correct. Yeah, I did that with yeah. Bill Fritz. Bill and I, uh, I TA'd for Bill in the summer of 19... 19- Eighty-six uh, mm-hmm. in Dillon, uh, as a geology graduate student at the University of Montana, uh, where I did my master's. Mm-hmm. And Bill was uh, had finished a PhD and was teaching at Georgia State. And so they Missoula had a combined uh, Montana University of Montana Georgia State field camp in those days. And uh, so Bill and I then started collaborating with one another on research. And uh, I don't know, probably about, you know, sometime in the 2000s, he he called me and said they were going to terminate the book at Mountain Press because it it had been written before Mm -hmm. um, there was any knowledge that the Yellowstone hotspot was part of the Snake River Plain system and the plate tectonics played a role in uh, moving the plate over the hot spot. Um, and so, uh, Bill's, you know, it was one of these classic things. Bill's called me and said, you know, they're going to get rid of it. Uh, You know, I think if we just did uh, maybe one or two additional road logs and you looked it over to make sure everything is okay, that should do it. It should take three months. (laughs) Three years later, after I re-ran every road log, uh, re-shot, you know, every photograph, um, changed most of them, frankly, uh, and changed every chapter and added new chapters uh, and all the road logs were redone uh, yeah it was it was redone <laughs> oh. so the only thing that remained of that book was the section on fossil forests which uh, bill had done for his phd i told him if he wanted to make any changes there it was up to him uh, i wasn't touching that
0: <laughs> right, that one's complete. So, and for folks who don't know the road, Roadside Geology series, uh, literally, you take a state or a geographic area, and it follows the highway system, and it's looking right. at the geologic features of interest as you go along the highway. Yeah. So, for a state as big as Montana, how many summers were you driving Montana to see
1: everything? I uh, roadside of Montana took us five years. Mm-hmm. um it it was a lot of work uh it uh you know, I have a job um and so <laughs> uh, trying to fit in you know, doing this on top of uh summer geology field camps and teaching you know full time from mm-hmm. uh August to may uh was. know difficult um my co-author don hyman you know is you know he was in his he's in his 80s and had plenty of time on his
0: (laughs) (laughs) right you're like (laughs) you (laughs) go
1: no Um, don and don and shirley went out and they they ran the high line stuff in (laughs) in central and eastern montana and uh i you know the goal was for me to do southwest montana but uh because i had a lot of experience in glacier and knew the belt rocks i ended up doing all the glacier national park stuff i redid a lot of um southeastern montana uh which i had uh, also experience with um with uh you know uh uh, projects that I was doing with Sheila Roberts mm-hmm. um, here at Montana Western. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I ended up doing—I um, don't know—you know, I outside of the bitterroot, which I had Don do because he, you know, had so much research. That he had done on the on the Bitterroot myelinite and the unroofing of the Bitterroot Dome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I had him do that, uh, and then he had done a lot of the northwestern corner of the state, which is the you know the just never-ending stops and uh, belt rocks and glacial Lake uh, Missoula deposits and things of that nature. So, uh, out,
0: of, out of all that research, was there one surprise that you were? <laughs> Surprised to find or like that really stuck out? Like, I didn't even know this was here.
1: Oh, yeah, I think there's there's a ton of those. Um, I one of the uh, people that I got some photographs from uh, a fellow by the name of Rob Benson, who is a retired high school. Well, he's actually still teaching out um, uh, in Hall. I think he's in Hall, uh, but he was at Helena High. And, uh, or one of the schools in Helena anyway, um, capital or high, I think he was at Helena high. Uh, he had turned me on to a place called snake butte, uh, which is this, uh, Shonkenite exposure out in central Montana that, uh, glaciers had overridden and had created these beautiful glacial striations or scratches in the rocks. And, uh, Uh, That was a place I didn't know about. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it's out there in reservation country. And uh, uh, Rod was quite familiar with it as a result Mm -hmm. of his uh, involvement uh, teaching out there on the reservation at the high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, that was a neat place. Uh, I had, uh, fortunately, you know, because of my work with Sheila Roberts, who I think you probably Mm -hmm. remember, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And Tom Satterly, I I traveled all over um, southeastern Montana. So I got to go to places a number of years prior to the book. uh, like uh, Medicine Rock State Park down by Ikalaka mm-hmm. and uh, Makoshka State Park and Glendive and uh, the the Bighorn Canyon region uh, where the Bighorn River comes out of Wyoming and cuts a big gash through the Pryor Mountains and exposes, uh, you know, Paleozoic rocks and is kind of the Grand Canyon of Montana mm-hmm. uh, and need place so uh i had actually discovered a lot of those places in advance but yeah there was you know no end of things with the book that i hadn't done um you know in any detail uh the centennial valley i was quite familiar with the centennial and had projects down there but i'd never done the uh uh, the pass uh, going across uh, Alaska Basin and coming down mm-hmm. in on the headwaters of the uh, Madison River. Uh, that was a treat uh, for sure in, here in southwest Montana. I thought I'd seen everything, but uh, that, that was new to me.
0: That, that road used to have, I don't know if it's still there. It's been forever since I've been on that road, but it used to have my favorite sign at the, at the cattle guard at the top. Rough yeah. road, forty miles, yeah. no gas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I yeah. wrote this whole uh, article for Birding Magazine about birding the Centennial Valley, and that oh was yeah, the, uh-huh. and that was the title that I wanted. You know, <laughs> rough road, forty miles, no gas. They changed it to Centennial Magic, which <laughs> you know, just ripped the heart out of me. But that, that uh, sign is still there. <laughs> yeah, that's awkwardness. You come up over there, you're like oh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the, no the, doubt. The whole idea of the roadside geology is to, to, to kind of be able to read the landscape as a lay person who's just interested in geology as you toodle on through. Is how yeah. I kind of think about it, and yes. I I was kind of wanting to expand that concept for you know things like we're into like hikers and ultra runners and other people where you're out in the environment. But a lot of people aren't reading the environment, or it's kind of te- you know how how do people start telling themselves the geologic story? So there's kind of this in, enhanced level of enjoyment mm-hmm. or awareness. Awareness, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I think that you know um, it, it's uh, uh, the next book project that, that is coming is called Montana Rocks and. Uh, the structure of that book will be um oldest to youngest. So the 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 Rocks series at Mountain Press uh is a is a series where um the goal is to uh, take the most kind of unique and fascinating geological places in the state and feature them. So they they give you, you know, roughly 60 65 of them to work with, so you pick 60, 65 places across the state that are kind of the special places to go. So when we were talking about doing that book, um, I talked with the folks about uh, at Mountain Press about instead taking the tack that we would do things in geological order, and that I would take the most spectacular place to see Archean metamorphic rocks that are three and a half billion years old. Mm-hmm. And then I would take a person to see, you know, the most spectacular place to see banded iron formation that is a couple of billion years old and and work your way up, you know, geologically uh, through time. And so uh, that is in progress, uh, that book. I'll be heading out onto the road this summer um, to once again, re-photograph things uh, with the idea Of that book in mind and I the hope is is that uh people will be able to use the book differently than roadside and that they will build in their head the geological history of the state of Montana Mm
0: -hmm.
1: by visiting these spectacular places right so I think that gets at what you're asking me which is you know how do you do it well, you do it by taking people and guiding them to these places in geological order, so um, they build then the geological history of the state uh, by doing it, by visiting it and experiencing it them for themselves. And I do that with students, and do that in the Dillon area where we're lucky mm-hmm. because I've got almost the whole geological column here in the Dillon area mm-hmm. to work with. So. Uh, but the book will you know, feature the whole state and, and it allows me to tap into things I don't have down here uh, in the geological history of the state. So anyway, I think that's the best way to do it. People need to get out on the rocks and experience it for themselves and they need to do so in chronological order um, from oldest to youngest. You know, geology is a book best read you know, backwards, if you will, from oldest to youngest. <laughs>
0: right. So you're just, yeah, you're going, start at the bottom and work your way up. Kind yep, of <laughs> start at the bottom
1: work your way up. You know, the, the geological record is, you know, it was like a, a new home was built four and a half billion years ago and dust started collecting on the windowsill. And so the oldest dust is against the, you know, the windowsill and the youngest dust is at the top of the pile of dust in your now dirty house. <laughs> And uh, so the the way for people to understand how the earth has changed in Montana is to do so chronologically, oldest to youngest.
0: And and when you're kind of telling that story, you know, going from oldest to youngest and and people can kind of, you know, start piecing together the processes, you know, what how was this deposited? How was that deposited? Is this igneous or yep. is this metamorphosed rock? Those kind of stories. Yeah. The the thing that always fascinates me about geologists is how, how do you get to those stories, right? Because I know there's, you know, you can do all the, you know, Zarcon dating and you can do all this mm-hmm. cool stuff to figure out relative ages. But how difficult it is to piece together, because I'm always amazed when people go, oh, no, this happened because, you know, it was semi-dried mud, and then it got disturbed, and then this happened. Right. So how how do you start to be able to look at something and then tell that story?
1: Yep. Um, I think that. Uh, You know, first of all, you you know, you avoid using the lingo as much as possible uh, that comes along with every science. Right. So every science is loaded with terminology and geology is maybe one of the worst uh, and that you can find three terms for the same thing. And so uh, the goal for me is to put it into English uh, for folks and to. Help them to understand the history by relating it as much as possible to the environments on the planet that they can see Mm -hmm. um, that exist on the planet. Now, that is somewhat difficult because the early Earth is really more like Mars, uh, you know, devoid of of plant life. it's a you know it's a water world, uh, but it's devoid of land plant life, um, and you know so the oldest rocks in, in Montana that are sedimentary, uh, maybe you know they're they're metamorphosed, but that had their origins in sedimentary rocks. Those environments record a place that is devoid of grass, devoid of trees. Um, you know, it's, it's a, that's a little harder because you have to ask people to envision a world, uh, of, you know, know, like, for example, the belt rocks, gigantic lakes, that the only living thing is cyanobacteria, Mm -hmm. uh, that is making stromatolites, you know, stromatolites, Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, And the ground surface is devoid of soil as we know it, devoid of plants as we know it. Um, And and that changes the environment to where you have these gigantic alluvial fans and sediment that occurs during a storm is easily liberated and transported down that fan to the lake in gigantic sheet floods of sand that are un- Precedented on the planet today, because the planet today consists of of uh, soils and plants that make channels. Um,
0: right. Things and, get in the
1: way. <laughs> and that's right, get in the way and confine the flows. And so, you know, I think the best way to explain it for people is really just to paint a picture for them, right? To use the English language and and try to paint a picture for them, just as I did. Right, um, and uh, I think that. If you're if you can do that well, uh, people can envision these, you know, these environments of the past, uh, and you know you bring in the modern world as much as you possibly can because people can relate to that. But the modern world doesn't have you know dinosaurs roaming around, say, right. in the Cretaceous. So uh, you just have to paint a world for them. You know, it's reconstructing these past environments. I think that you know, geology is two things: it is understanding the processes that uh, you know operate on the planet, but it's also a, a historical science.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you're reconstructing the past as well as understanding processes. So it's physics and chemistry and biology. Um, but it's also history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you you have to be able to paint a picture for people to understand these past worlds and how they differed from
0: the one today. Right. Now I say, as a bird guy, we still have dinosaurs. <laughs> right. <you're> right. <laughs> I, I fall into that all the time. I'm like, wait a second, they are dinosaurs. Never yeah, mind. no, absolutely. Yes, we.
1: I should say, uh we we don't have we have all other outside of uh avian dinosaurs. We yeah. don't have dinosaurs.
0: Maniraptoran <laughs> dinosaurs are the left, right. But so <laughs> that, that always blows people's mind. And, then, and, and I think a lot, The other thing that I run into is when you try to tell, you know, people these stories. You know, like uh, dinosaurs still exist and. You know, this rock did this and you get this idea of deep time. Yes. And so many people are either reluctant to deep, deep time, the whole concept of it. Yes. Or they just kind of, they refuse because it alters their worldview a little bit. Yeah. And I kind of see that invading STEM education and I kind of see an erosion of STEM education Mm-hmm. And while that's happening, you're building up or helping to build up this program at UM Western of providing STEM education. Yes. Beyond. So, how do those two go together? How do you build this new program to do STEM when you know budgets are getting cut for for right. science and?
1: Yeah. Uh, um. We made do with what we had. So when I came to Western in '93, uh, the place was the state's normal school. Uh, mm-hmm. Still, there were uh, it had elementary, secondary, and early childhood education. There were some two-year programs, but otherwise, uh, that was it. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, we were immediately when I got there, because I made a decision to go there by choice. I had left Vastor College where I was in a tenure line position and chose to go to Western, which, you know, my advisors thought I was absolutely insane, but I didn't want to retire in Poughkeepsie, New York. So, uh, you know, coming back to Montana and being able to have an academic job, I had to you know, frankly, make do with what I could. And uh, Western was what was available. Um, I would have, you know, at that time, preferred to have gone to an established program. But in retrospect, uh, my career has been there, has been about building a educational system that was the one that I would have preferred myself and that was way more interesting than having come into an existing program. So what we did is we had nothing. I mean, we I always used to tell people we're working with stone knives and bearskins at Western. And uh, I mean, you were there. You know what it was.
0: Oh, like. yeah. <laughs> and,
1: and so uh, I knew that what we had in spades was one of the best natural environments in all of Montana. and. We had small class sizes so that we could use our situation to take students in the field. So um, I thought rather than be like Missoula and Bozeman and You know, do the mass production education thing and lecture at people for 15 weeks. That instead, what we needed to do was to go to a field and project based approach. And the only way to do that was to have freedom from scheduling. So we became the first public university in the history of the United States to use block scheduling, where students take classes one at a time for 18 days. And uh, they take four blocks per semester. So they're taking their class one at a time. That allows me to then work with them all day long. Um, so that I immediately took you know classes and started going out in the field with them and working on projects. And so you know back to that problem of. You know, how do you take people that have been contaminated, that the earth is 6,000 years old and all rocks were deposited by the biblical flood, and try to turn them respectfully around to understanding the reality of the world in which they live? The best way to do that is to take them in the field and and have them experience it for themselves. And they can't unexperience it. So I I can take them up Birch Creek, which you know, in the Pioneer Mountains, (laughs) (laughs) and I can show them tropical marine deposits with fossils of corals in them that are tilted up on edge as a part of big folds uh, in one stop and show them the earth cannot be 6,000 years old. (laughs) Right. <laughs> that this was once a tropical marine environment like Belize, and that these animals that they're looking at as fossils in the rock—they're still familiar to them. These are corals mm-hmm. and they're brachiopods and things that they, you know, would still see in the modern world, uh, only their ancestral forms. And they're in a rock, and that rock is bent, and to be bent, rocks don't bend. Rocks break with a hammer. So how could that rock possibly be bent? Well, they then understand, oh, it must've been hot uh, to be bent. Okay, how does it get hot? Well, it must've been buried to be hot, like the mines in Butte. You know, and the miner's working at 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the subsurface, there's a geothermal gradient to the earth. It gets hotter as you go down. And as you get down, say five miles, those rocks now are acting like Play-Doh. And when they're being crushed in a plate collision, they're bending and folding. And now we can see them at the surface of the earth. That means that five miles of rock was uplifted and and eroded away and went down Birch Creek, ancestral Birch Creek Mm -hmm. and into the ancestral drainage system off the continent of North America. When you pull all that together in one outcrop stop, The notion that the earth is young is gone forever.
0: Right. Is that something you actually witnessed in a student? Oh, yes. Yes.
1: Uh, I've been doing it for 28 years at the same (laughs) outcrop.
0: So you can actually see the light bulb.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And what I try to do is to, you know, I try to, you know, the goal is for them to understand that, that their belief systems are compatible with being a scientist. In fact, 75% of scientists around the world are people of faith, um, whether they be Muslim or whether they be Hindu or whether they be Christian or whatever they be. And, uh, and so there's a compatibility there as long as you understand what science is and what it is not. So um, science is not you know, science is just a method, right, of understanding the world. So if I can help them to understand taking observations and thinking through the processes from those observations, and then they realize, oh, well, the earth must be old. And and then I can, you know, tell them, well, go ahead, if they're Christians, and say, take a look at the Bible and and tell me Where it says anything in the Bible regarding the age of the earth, it it says nothing. And so I can send them back and they can sit and then all of a sudden they can go and say, "Okay, well, days in the Bible then could be millions of years. Right. Right. And so now all of a sudden you've got them to where reality shows them that there's been this long process of change. The earth is really old and it has changed over and over and over and over again. And that is okay with their faith because their faith actually says nothing about the age of the earth being six thousand years old. Um, That is not written down. That was something that was surmised by a, a bishop of the English church in the 1600s a guy by the name of usher who came up with this notion that the earth was formed in october uh 4004 bc he actually gave a date right.
0: <laughs> then there was a guy after him that gave the time
1: like, yes and a guy came like, after him like,
0: like 159 in the afternoon like oh time. that's correct
1: so <laughs> it's it's uh, The goal is to be is to be respectful um, with students. Right. They're young. Um, You know, they're 18 and they just left Ismay, Montana. And, you know, they are encountering new ideas for the first time. And and so as long as I treat them respectfully and just help them to understand what they're looking at and to think through what they're looking at, they understand the connection of reality (laughs) to what they're looking at and uh, they can find a place uh, within themselves to hold a belief system as well as uh, the reality of the world.
0: Sounds like you enjoy the teaching process just as much as the science. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He was a good one. Uh, I keep about it. <laughs> he, he, he put up with me. Uh, so, you know, when you have these students and you give them this, this, uh, this real world experience, like you're actually going out into the field, which for yes. so many, for so many collegiate students, you know, all they get is classroom lecture, yes. la- maybe a lab once right. a week with some TA and who he doesn't even care. And I don't see how that engenders um, enthusiasm, but it seems like your students and all the students that come out of the, the, that program at Western all seem to be almost advocate. You know, they're just these advocates of their area of study. They they constantly delve into it. So, was that on purpose when you guys are kind of designing that, or was that like a byproduct of the design?
1: No, it was definitely part of the design. So, geologists you know, really amongst the scientists, I think geologists are somewhat unique in that we have a summer intensive field experience, geology field camp. And so you are doing what we do in the block. Um, You have a month long class, you're totally immersed without any other coursework and you are in the field experiencing, you know, the science. And so it, it's a natural for geoscientists, I think, to wanna educate people this way and to understand from their experiences, undergrads themselves with especially the field camp, that uh, that's the best learning you ever went through. Mm-hmm. You know, um, th- there I can remember my field camp experience, with incredible clarity, <laughs> you know it's it's incredibly vivid still in my mind. I can remember the outcrops. Uh, I can remember the maps that I made. Uh, it it, you know, Dick Clark, who I don't remember if you overlapped with Dick, not a bandstand fame, but a Western fame.
0: I, did overlap, uh, but the name. Okay, so Richard, <laughs> he.
1: He used to, t- he was our person who did our um, our program and uh, the naturalist program, right? The guiding naturalist program. Mm-hmm. And Richard used to always say that um, in order for a person to uh, uh, really want to protect the environment. You have to take them into the environment to where they come to love the environment, and then they will want to protect it. Mm-hmm. And the same concept applies to learning. Um, for people to really understand their discipline, they have to go do it. And once they've done it, if it it becomes a passion for them, and they can never a unlearn it and b abandon it as a passion. And so the system of field and project based approach, in my view, is how human beings learn. We learned the we learned this way on the savannas of Africa. Um, We learned through experience. You know, Joe went over there and picked the blueberry and ate it and died. And everyone was like, don't eat those blueberries. Uh, And it got passed along that you don't eat the blueberries. And there's always a few people that were like, no, I got to try it myself. And they ate the blueberries and they died. And there was this continual experiential learning that got passed along um, that told us don't eat the blueberries. So this is how the human brain works. The system of sitting in a lecture was designed by the Catholic Church to train priests. The word lectern. Is, means separation of knowledge i have it it's in this book and i'm going to per i'm going to mm. impart to you what is important for you to teach people in the from the pulpit right and i'm i'm gonna do that because there's actually a lot of stuff in here i don't want you to teach because it's actually not so nice Especially when you're talking about the Hebrew scriptures, right? right, which is full of rape and sodomy and incest and a bunch of other things.
0: Um, a good time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so we were not meant to learn the way that the universities operate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That is an efficient system, if you will, and I'm doing quotes, <coughs> that was designed to transfer information. From one person to another. So, okay, I'll uh, I will ante up and 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 admit that there is a place for a lecture, in that it's an efficient way for me to provide you with background information. But if I don't turn you loose to go test the berries, um, you haven't learned. Right. You have <laughs> not learned.
0: And, and so that actually kind of turns the professor more into a mentor. I'm, I'm guiding yeah. you through this, but you can, <laughs> you know, take yes. your lumps and bruises and make mistakes. and
1: Yes. It's more like graduate education mm-hmm. where you're turned loose on a project on your own. And uh, you, you know, by the time you're done, the goal uh, of your advisor is for you to know more than they do. I mean, I can remember when I went in for my my uh, final, you know, a presentation of my dissertation at the University of Washington, you know, the my advisor, Jody Bourgeois, uh, you know, came to me and said, you know, remember, you know, more about this than anyone else in the room. You know, our goal now is for you to teach us, you know, what you've found out. Mm-hmm. And you know, we'll ask questions that are naive and, you know, your job is to help us to understand because you're now the expert in this thing. And, and so I'm just taking that part of the educational system and making it available to undergrads. That's what Mm -hmm. we did at Western. And it's, it's unique. No other public school in the history of the United States has done what we've done.
0: Yeah. And, I, you know, it's kind of funny. We didn't have when I was there, we didn't have the blocks no, yet. Didn't. But we we're
1: trying. It took us 10 years because everyone opposed us. The Montana yeah. University system opposed us. George Denison, who was president of UM Missoula, opposed us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the, uh, uh, the the people, Dylan, put up signs that had block written circle around it and a slash through it. And they were in the places of business all throughout town. What? <laughs> yeah. The and what editor was of the a- Dillon Tribune wrote a full piece in the Dillon Tribune in the editorial section on why I should leave. Wow. Because I was a great Satan of the whole thing right
0: so what was there what what, what what does it feel like to be popular <laughs> yeah. well
1: it's a most people think it was their idea now and oh, right. Uh, and of now, course so. since yeah
0: you took the beating but <laughs> now now that it's approved no, no, then... that's okay I,
1: I don't care at all about that i wanted people to uh, to see that it works and um so yeah i have great joy that people think that you know they don't remember that any longer that, you mm-hmm. know, they, all they know now is that, Oh, I sure like that block system. Oh, I sure. You know, I hear from students, they really love that block system. And uh, I, I'm just deeply gratified. Right. I have no regrets. <laughs> well,
0: it was about 10 years. That That is a long battle just to make, which seems to make sense now. So is there, is there, have you been contacted by other universities and okay. colleges? And go, hey, how how the heck do we do this?
1: Oh yeah, yep. I've done a lot of consulting across the country on this. I've presented on it for years, and uh, not a single university has managed to pull it off. Um, uh, they're not in the U.S. Uh, There was a Canadian university, brand spanking new, Quest University, that was founded using the block system. And they were aware of us, and we did Mm. talk with them. Uh, And Colorado College, of course, deserves credit for having founded this idea uh, back in the late 60s. You know, it was a time of peace, love, and dope. You could do anything, you know, uh, and, and an administrator went around and asked people, if you could change this college in any way, what would you do? And some professor said, give me my 15 students and no interruptions. And uh, that became the block. So they invented it at CC and and, uh, we stole it shamelessly, like all good ideas, but it had never applied to a public. And we were the poorest public university that you could possibly imagine. And so I had a lot of people that went after me in the Dillon community and said, oh, this is only for rich kids. This will only work for rich kids. And I would explain to him what I just explained to you all about yeah. the fundamental nature of how human beings learn and that this right. is not about rich kids. Well,
0: it has In to fact, be also that you're just totally immersed for the 18 days. Oh my gosh. The students, yeah, yeah, they love
1: it. I, I mean, we lose, you know, a student, you know, here and there, but well, I'll tell you, there are very few that come to me and say, you know, I'm going cause I don't like the block that almost never happens. Almost never. Instead, I get many of the transfer from U of M and MSU, and uh, they'll be in class, and I'll be discussing the block on first day. You know, because I like to tell students what this thing is, um, since I have this institutional knowledge. Um, might as well take advantage of my role as the Great Satan. So, uh, <laughs> so I tell them, you know, where it came from, and explain it to them. And uh, the the ones that are transfers. You know I'll look at them and i'll I'll say, you know you know what the old system was like. what do you think and they you know universally they're like no comparison mm-hmm. you know, this is way better
0: is it for the institutions that one there's institutional entropy, they don't want to change too much, mm-hmm. but the other is do you think that I don't know, with the immersion, it makes the student more self-directed. So it's almost like we were talking about with the lectern, that that idea of funneling in yeah. this very narrow band disappears or at least gets muddy.
1: I, I I really think the reason why nobody picks it up is it's the it's the faculty. They won't do it because it's too hard. I, I mean, they have to... I've got to put together projects, you know, uh, over and over. I've got to find new things for students to do all the time. I can't take my yellowed lecture notes and go walk in and and just, you know, yammer at people for 50 minutes and go back to my office. I have to have them engaged, and I feel an obligation for them to be engaged in something that actually makes a contribution to society. So I am constantly after new projects, things that we can do that are of value to society. So, you know, one of the things that I've got students doing is working on streams. So for 10 years, I had students work on uh, the uh, habitat for uh fluvial arctic grailing on the upper big hole and we you know worked on every you know practically every tributary coming into the main stem of the big hole and the main stem above the wisdom bridge for a decade and what we were doing was providing information on the, the status of the macroinvertebrates, the status of the morphology and function of the stream, you know, et cetera, all the things that relate to the proper habitat for those grayling. And then we would make recommendations to the agencies on what should be done to improve the situation. And then they commonly then would adopt that information, put it into practice and boom, my students made a difference in saving fluvial arctic grayling from extinction. How does it get better than that?
0: Oh, it doesn't. And also, I think it turns those students like they understand what they're going to be doing once they're in the real world. Yes. Oh, okay. I put together a project. The project has a reasoning behind it. And I go ahead and execute on it.
1: Yeah, they build a portfolio of what they can do. What we're sending them out from the traditional schools is a transcript listing of classes. Well, everyone's got that. um, But I want to see what you can do. So my students walk away with project after project after project that they were a part of and they wrote chapters for and they gathered data and did the analysis and did the GIS applications, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And they can take that to an employer and lay it down on the table and say, this is what I can do. Mm -hmm. That makes a huge difference.
0: How how do you think that sets them up for graduate school when, you know, you all of a sudden you've been in this syllabus, you know, you're just going through the gates and all of a sudden now you go to graduate school and like, oh, by the way, there's no gates anymore. You're kind of self-directed. Go for it.
1: So graduate. Yeah. Oh, totally. So ask the folks at Tech. We've put a lot of our students up at Tech because we have a great relationship with them. And uh Uh, you know, wonderful group of faculty up there. And uh, they've taken on a lot of our students into grad school. And I think they tell you they're outstanding. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, way, you know, no offense to the others, but I mean, they're really well-prepared. I'll just say that, Mm -hmm. you know, they're exceedingly well-prepared and they are ready to go on it on their own because that's what they've been doing for four years. They've been doing project work where I've told them, you know, you guys have to go gather, you know, the data of 22 cross sections across the upper Clark fork in the next two weeks. And then we have to process all those data in Excel. And then we have to interpret all those data and write up a chapter for a report that we're going to give to DQ and uh, you know, various other, you know, um, land management agencies that are interested in the upper Clark fork. Well, that's a big task for them to take on. And my role is just simply to be the, the, you know, the nudge that is, you know, hovering over them, you know, the boss Mm -hmm. to make sure they get it done. And that the, the, the quality is up to snuff. Um, So that when they bring me something that's bad, it's like, you know, send them away and and say, do it again. Um, You know, that's not going to cut it. That rarely happens. Frankly, they usually, you know, They're on track um, and they know how to find resources to uh, produce quality work. Um, You know, it's, it, it develops over time. You know, they don't start that way in their first year, but by the time they're in their last year um, I'll put them up against any grad student.
0: They're ready to go. Yeah.
1: Totally. So
0: so the radical change of subject, you mentioned the Yellowstone hotspot. Yeah. A couple of years ago, i had never been there i had seen the sign driven past it a hundred times but finally went to the craters of the moon Mm -hmm. that place blows my mind that it within human occupation of north america within you know almost memory that native people would have seen flowing lava in the middle of idaho i know how does that relate to the hotspot? I've been trying to figure out, like, how do you have this, this this disjointed little volcanic area?
1: Kind of, it doesn't. So let me explain. So um, the the feeder for Yellowstone um, is deflected into the mantle uh, at an angle that goes under, goes to the northwest towards Dillon. Mm-hmm. So the 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 magma chamber you see, I was tell people this, uh, you know, I don't, people are probably not seeing me, right? Uh, so they can't yeah. see this, but this is the hot spot. So there's right. this big pipe like my arm coming up and then there's my hand, the palm of my hand and the palm of my hand is the, uh, is the main magma chamber uh, residing underneath uh, uh, and within the continental crust. And then Above it are two fingers of material that come up, and one of them comes up underneath the Sour Creek Dome, and one comes up the Mallard Lake Dome. And those are the mm-hmm. two closest places that magma makes to the surface, mm-hmm. okay? Now, all of that is is up there, you know, uh, it is to the northeast of Arco and Craters of the Moon. Mm -hmm. way far away so what the heck is with uh you know the craters of the moon all right well when the hot spot erupts it creates huge volumes of ash it it empties the top of the magma chamber with mostly ash and gas and rock dragons and so on and then it collapses in on itself that's called a caldera then the caldera will start filling in with thick, viscous flows of lava. And eventually, it gets to the point where all that thick, viscous stuff is done from the magma chamber. And what's left is a direct pipe down into the mantle that brings basalt up. And the basalt then covers over the scar of the old caldera and creates a scab, if you will, of dark black rock basalt Mm -hmm. over the top of it creating a plain, the Snake River Plain. So the Snake River Plain is a series of scabs over a series of calderas that have formed over the last 17 million years as the plate has moved to the Southwest over the stationary hotspot, like a candle burning through my moving hand at the rate of two centimeters a year, which is the rate at which your fingernail grows. Okay. Speedy. So <laughs> the hot spot is under Yellowstone mm. National Park now, right? It's always been in that spot, but the plate's been moving over it right. and it's created the Snake River Plain to the southwest as the scar track of the plate moving over the stationary candle. Mm. And then covered over by that last bit of magma that comes out, the basalt, as lava, and covers over it, making the Snake River plain. And it makes it hard to see these old calderas as a result. So what is Craters of the Moon? The Craters of the Moon is an eruption that occurs along a northwest trending fracture system right through the Snake River plain. What's happening is that we are in the middle of the basin and range. we're pulling apart, including mm-hmm. the snake River plain. It's pulling apart and as it pulls apart, it decreases the pressure on the underlying mantle it partially melts it and that comes up as new basalt at craters of the moon not. So there- Part of Yellowstone,
0: so two entirely separate processes. Yes. So this is the same process that's uh, responsible for like the volcanics in Nevada, right? Yeah. That you see, yeah, or, or, or
1: uh, in you know the Death Valley area, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden, oh, there's a cinder cone. Why is that here?
1: That's right. Yep. So it's it's when you pull the crust of the Earth apart. It extends and fractures and it reduces the pressure on the underlying asthenosphere, the Mm -hmm. mantle. And that is hot. And so it's like hot just means the atoms are really vibrating vigorously. Temperature is a record of the vibrational energy of the atoms. Mm -hmm. So when you release the pressure on the atoms, what do they do? They break the bonds because they're able to move in more open space. There's less pressure on them, Right. So it partially melts the mantle when you reduce the pressure by pulling the crust apart and thinning right. it. And so the whole basin in range is in this process of decompression, decompression, decompression melting. As it pulls apart, it's reducing the pressure and it melts in some places and it's melting and coming up, uh, melting mantle and coming up at uh,
0: Craters of the Moon. And, and and is that why they're kind of like like little small you know on a geographic scale, crater's moon isn't gigantic, right? It's like this little small thing happened here, and then you know a couple of the other places, Nevada, Death yeah. Valley, they're like limited.
1: Yeah, 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 um, yeah. We're early on in this pull apart process in the Western U.S. Eventually, what happens is you go past the basin and range stage, and you go into the red sea stage where you literally have the parting of the waters (laughs) Um, and the Arabian Peninsula moving off of Africa has gone through a basin range phase and is now in the linear sea stage, the red sea stage. Mm -hmm. And there's honest to God, ocean water or ocean rock, uh, ocean floor rock um, underneath the red sea. It's basalt. It is, there's a rift and it is extruding out new ocean floor basalt.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Eventually,
0: it just goes like this, right? Like, it, yeah. like a reverse conveyor belt kind of thing.
1: That's right. And so, eventually, over time, you can open up an ocean the size of the Atlantic Ocean, separating North America from Europe and Africa and South America, right? And so, that's taken 250 million years as the supercontinent of Pangea has broken apart. And it went through a basin arranged stage as the supercontinent broke up. It went through a linear sea stage, and now it's in the full-blown ocean basin stage. Now, will the Western U.S. get there? I'm not in the business of predicting the future of geology. Because it's really impossible to know whether this extension will continue or not. And what does it matter? It's hundreds of millions of years off.
0: Right. Well, I was, I was thinking some people would get really hopeful that California and the West Coast would have. Nope, been. not happening. <laughs> <laughs> There's some I mean, people that really, are <laughs> The San
1: Andreas Fault is sliding in such a way that L.A. you know is moving towards San Francisco and San Francisco is moving towards L.A. And so you, the Giants and Dodgers could be crosstown rivals once again, but not in our <laughs> lifetime.
0: Not in our lifetime. <laughs> well, uh I'd just like to thank you again, Rob, for coming on and chatting with us for an hour. And, and you uh, is Can I it? ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, <laughs> if
1: you were given a million dollars, what would you do with it? Oh, I think that I would start my own campus. Yeah. I would. I always wanted to buy the orphanage and Twin Bridges. When, when mm-hmm. we were in the height of the fight at Western and I was receiving so much flack, I thought, I want to find somebody who will invest in me, go buy that orphanage, and put Western out of business. Because <laughs> <laughs> I see higher ed as a business. You know, you you have to compete. You have to have something to offer the student client. I know my, my colleagues bristle at that idea. <laughs> but uh, it's arrogant thinking uh, to think that, you know, you don't need to adjust that the, the student to some degree is not a client or you know the, it's arrogant to think that the student is to some degree is not a client um, the student is to to a degree a client I mean it's a weird business because they pay to get <laughs> the product right <laughs> and they have to work for it right so I can go into Walmart buy a, a you know, Uh, buy a tv um, and i paid for it but i didn't have to work for it as well Um, and higher ed is a weird one because you got to work for four years to get it um, and you have to pay for it on top of it so it's not a business in that way but what the heck we're all doing education exactly the same way can't there be one place that is different i'm always amazed at the pushback that we got because it's like. Please, there's no other reason for this campus to exist. Let us try something different. Right. And we were right. It worked and it saved the campus. And uh, but if I had a million bucks, I would have I would have done it my way without all the hassle. You know, it would have wouldn't have taken 10 years. We'd have done it immediately and it would have worked and it would have been it would have been good.
0: And you would have reaped the (laughs) benefits for a little bit longer.
1: That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> and what's the best way to uh, to find you? Should someone have an extra million dollars in their pocket? <laughs> give me a call. <laughs> yeah, give me a call. <laughs> You're in the book. Kind of
1: <laughs> no, I think that you know this. Uh, you know it's a great it's a great topic because we all experience education, whether we do college level or not, and. The whole system, in my view, is presently not really working great. And the part of it that works the best is the elementary education level. Why? Can't lecture to little kids. Yeah. You got to engage them in doing stuff. Right. The best teaching's going on at the elementary school level,
0: <laughs>
1: without question. And so it's the rest of it that's broken, and uh, we got to fix it. Um, Because high schools are deadly boring and dull. And so what do students do? They play football and basketball and the burnouts or smoking pot behind the wherever, you know, they do all these other things. And the academics becomes almost not even relevant, right? Other than to pass your classes. But who's really, pat? you know. You know, really passionate about their education in high school. Man, it's hard to find those. And it's the system. It's not that there aren't good high school teachers. There's a lot of wonderful high school teachers. It's this bloody system that they're using.
0: Right. They just cause. So do you think that that <laughs> the block the block could actually be instituted in the high school oh, like oh, hey for yeah. 15 days you're just with the biology teacher that's all you're doing
1: a- 18 uh and that yeah. extra three makes a difference but um absolutely this thing is tailor-made for small schools um this thing is absolutely perfect for class c schools with kids that are used to you know, putting pins in their pocket and fixing a fence. And they're not mm-hmm. good book learners, but they're right. good experiential learners. I think right. it's outstanding for Native Americans, for American Indians. This is the kind of learning that they're good at, experiential learning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it, that's how the, the world is to them. And the book learning piece is a Western construct. It's a white Western construct, and it, it's not good.
0: Yeah, it's so funny. There's a podcaster that I really enjoy, and he calls his his podcast Crime Pays, but Botany Doesn't. <laughs> and he's an amateur botanist. He n- never went to college. Yeah. But his depth of knowledge is just because he goes in the field, and then he'll download the textbook and try to figure out, like, what the heck was I seeing? And then construct, oh, I understand the families going on here. And he he's actually... A, quite a bit of geology too, because he's into finding. Cer- he's really big in the serpentine associated plants. Mm, cool. So, it's, you know, how do I find the serpentine, and why is there serpentine? And yep, that sort of Jack thing.
1: Horner, Mr. Dinosaur, has no college degree. Yeah, he is an honorary doctor. Why he was dyslexic? His dyslexia was interpreted by people around him at the U of M as being lazy.
0: So he was just they thinking him
1: out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he went, he got himself a tour of Vietnam.
0: <laughs> yeah. That'll make you want to go look for rocks.
1: <laughs> well, you know, it one person believed in him, I think, and that was Don Winston, uh, who just recently passed. Mm-hmm. You probably saw my post on Don.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, he was my advisor at U of M and, and you know, one of the best human beings I've ever known. And Don believed in, in Jack and uh, Jack and I talked about it after Don passed and we've spoken about it before. And, uh, but he, he gave me a little more depth into his, you know, experience there. And he, he said, you know, people thought he was lazy, you know, because he was like severely dyslexic and that's how it was interpreted. And the the response was, well, Got to kick him out of here because he's just you know he's lazy and and won't won't do the work. Mm-hmm. It, Don Winston looked at him and said, "This guy's a genius. Uh, you know, this guy has a better eye for fossils and inherently understanding." past environments and animals and plants living in those environments than any other kid I've ever seen, you know, and, uh, and, and Don helped him to get his first job when he came back from uh, Vietnam and he, and he worked at Princeton as a broom pusher, you know, and he worked his way up to, you know, now, you know, arguably the most famous dinosaur paleontologist on earth.
0: Well, I don't think there's another one that's more famous.
1: (laughs) Probably not. I mean, I'd say it arguably because I have a lot of other friends who are dinosaur paleontologists. I don't want them to, you know, to feel
0: oh uh, to feel left out. (laughs) Yes,
1: yes. But, you know, Jack's pretty Mm well-known. And, uh, you know, so he really was a genius. And um, he really had a talent. And his talent was brought out by experience, uh, experiential learning, right? So he's become a, you know, incredible dinosaur paleontologist through experience, not through traditional education.
0: Right. I, I got a little personal story with jack corner so when i was in bozeman i did a lot of business travel Mm -hmm. and twice he made the utter mistake of buying the plane ticket next to me (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) so i sat next to him the first time like oh i'm fanboying out i'm gonna ask this guy some questions (laughs) and i was thinking when he came to western he had the whole his theory of of uh, t-rex as a scavenger yes and, uh, talk about that. And, da, 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 and you yep. get to see, he, he couldn't wait till we got to Salt Lake. And, uh,
1: <laughs> That's right. You, you were here
0: when he yeah.
1: gave it on the rocks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was probably like three or four months later I get on the plane. I'm sleepy at six o'clock in the morning. Who's sitting on the seat next to me. Hey buddy. <laughs> Let's go again, <laughs> round two. Did you can see him glaze over like I wanted to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't gonna let yeah, it go. Sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I. Jack's his best with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen anyone better uh, with kids. He is just spectacular. He gets them so turned on and motivated. It's incredible.
0: Well, that's, Well, I think uh, we'll probably wrap it up but okay. I'd, like to, I'd like to thank you for your time
1: yeah it was uh, fascinating and very lovely to listen
0: to you thank you it was, it was nice was great. to meet you both. or well Brad I, I met yeah <laughs> we've met <laughs> but this is this is the Vita this is the, this is the boss lady can she I ask you shit. one question before we part yeah sure okay uh, <laughs> what would you do if you found a penguin in your freezer oh wow <laughs>
1: Um, I would immediately begin investigating. (laughs) 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 Because there would have to be a good story associated with
0: it. All right. All right. right. Just like a good scientist, you're going to (laughs) investigate.
1: Yes. (laughs) That would be my response.
0: (laughs) See, now you get insight into my daily life. (laughs) How <laughs> do I answer this?
1: Yeah, <laughs> well, what I was gonna do is I was gonna ask you whether the penguin was alive or dead. Because <laughs> it can oh. probably live in the freezer with no problem.
0: Yes, it's yeah, therefore it's probably alive. <laughs> <laughs> but what if it's a big penguin, then you stuff it and no. jam it in well, there? Yeah. <laughs> it's a big freezer. It's a big free a uh, chest freezer. There you just go. think it's the next meal, but <laughs> I would, I would probably like it well. It looks like it's penguin Well, the raw diet is popular. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, Rob, thank you so much for for being You're on welcome. the Mountain Misfits. Okay. I'm.